everybody, and welcome to episode 15 of Charlie's GeekCast. My name is Charlie Niemeyer, and this episode begins our weekly look at Grant Morrison's run on JLA. That's right. In case you missed last week's episode, this show is going weekly until we finish Grant Morrison's run. I will probably have some specials that will come out during that time. In fact, I know I will have some specials coming out during that time. Um, But the main episodes will be about Morrison's run on the JLA. But before we get to this week's issue, I've got some feedback that's been a long time coming due to uh, a delayed episode. Uh, Last episode, I just... I didn't think I would have time to put them in. And then, of course, the commentaries got in the way. So we've got some feedback. First of all, we've got a rev- an iTunes review left by Sloppy171 that says, So far, so good. And it's five stars, so thank you. It says, Heard Charlie on the new 52 Adventures of Superman. Rest in peace. Been listening to his show since it started. Been great so far. Well, thank you, Sloppy. Um glad to have you aboard. I do miss uh, New 52 Adventures of Superman, but um, it's not the last time, that's not the last time I'll ever be podcasting with John and or Dave again, so. Um, next up, we've got some response, uh, well, e- not really emails. Well, yeah, emails. First one up is from Russell Bragg, and he writes, Episode 11, Superman 2 Commentary. Hello! Really enjoyed your commentary on Superman 2. This movie has always been my favorite of the Christopher Reeve movies. I like the Donner version of the movie the best, even though it was the Lester version I saw in the theaters. The Donner cut gives us the sense of what Superman 2 was supposed to be. I know what we got is haphazard in many ways, but if Donner would have been allowed to continue, we Superman fans wouldn't know the difference because there wouldn't have been two Superman 2 films. Things we complained about rewatching the DVD or Blu-ray would have been cleaned up, reshot, etc. before post-production. It's nice to think about. It's nice to finally have the answer I was always looking for with a mystery that confounded me. How did picking up a green crystal restore Superman's powers? I did take notes as I was listening, so here are answers to or even some more questions. Evita opened at the Broadway Theater on September 25, 1979, so I guess it could have been open while Superman 2 was shot. Or at least that scene. Okay, cool. Uh, Lois got back to Metropolis in the car that Superman and Lois drove from the fortress. Where they got that car, I still have no idea, unless Superman had it in the fortress garage for just such a depowering emergency. Where was the supermobile when he needed it? (laughs) Oh, God, I don't know if they... Can you imagine trying to put the supermobile in one of the movies? Uh, Anyway. My thoughts were the same as yours, as... Or in regards to Superman being killed by the bus. Those people from Metropolis were idiots. A mother's trying to protect her baby by just covering the carriage with her body? Really? Okay, now that one... Um, that one, that part, I, I will... I, I'm going to put in just the situation. Um, it's just a mother's nature to... Well, it's supposed to be any mother's nature to protect her young, uh, whether it's human or any other basically any other life form. Um, And there's always the possibility that the mom's body could have at least lessened the effect of the crash. Uh, It's just something that happens, and when it's last second like that, she just, that was the only thing she could think to do. Um, That's what I'm thinking. Anyway, hey, maybe if we all gang up on these Kryptonians, we can take them out. Really? No, no, that was stupid, yes. Turning on Superman because he wants to regroup and protect the city? Really? I hope I don't live in a city that stupid. Well, it... 
Well, if you're not in the metropolis in 1980, I think you're fine. As I was listening, I began to wonder. With the reversal of time, would the villains have regained their superpowers, even though they'd still be in the Phantom Zone? How would Rocky... Okay. Uh, that, I would say... They... Technically, with reversal of time, they would have been back in the Phantom Zone without ever having escaped. So, if at some point they did get out again, they would still be able to get their superpowers back, is my thought. How would Rocky have remembered Clark, unless it's just a bully seeing someone he thinks he can beat up easily? With the f uh, Now, that one is a plot hole. Would the fortress have been restored? I'd say theoretically. Would all of the people General Zod killed be alive now? Yeah, actually, I think he would. Uh, would Jimmy's camera be fixed? <laughs> probably. Lots of questions and probably even more plot holes. Oh, well, better let you go for now. Continued success, Russell Bragg. Well, thank you for that, little missive, Russell. Next up, uh, we have a comment left by Justine... And I'm apologizing for say if I say this wrong, but it's Justine... Bonish, Bonish, uh, and she left this on a comment on the episode, uh, episode five, the Transformers movie commentary, and she says, uh, Megatron is the founder of the Decepticon uprising and their most feared leader. Bob Budansky, the writer of the Marvel comic series, stated that originally Hasbro took issue with the name, saying it sounded way too frightening. Budansky responded that as the lead villain, that was the point. Hasbro later agreed with this reasoning and approved the name Megatron. Well, thank you very much, Justine. Uh, let's see. Next up, we have... This uh, time, we have a, another episode comment. This one's from Russell Bragg again. Uh, for episode 13, the Superman 4 commentary. Hello, Charlie. Great Superman commentary once again. Now, Superman 4 is the Superman movie I have seen the least. I don't think it has ever... It was ever as bad as people made it out to be. It was a great story idea, and like you said very comic booky. If you're not overly picky about visual effects, it is a very passable and enjoyable movie. Well, here's some more trivia for you, which you probably already know, but the listener might not. On to episode 14. Okay, the trivia. Mark Rosenthal and writer Lawrence Connor wanted Reeve to play uh, Nuclear Man, as well as his dual roles of Clark Kent and Superman in the film. They imagined the villain being Superman's polar opposite, or a darker version of Bizarro. Unfortunately, this would be financially expensive and was already explored in minor detail in Superman 3, so Cannon decided to hire Mark Pillow instead for the part of Nuclear Man in the final film. Now, that could have made the Nuclear Man thing a little uh, kind of interesting, but I think since they had just done it in 3, it would have just seemed like rehashing, so I'm kind of glad they did that. According to Reeve, Golan and Globus did not have a script in mind when they first approached him about doing the fourth installment. They simply wanted him to reprise his role. Reeve himself admitted in his autobiography, Still Me, that he really wasn't sure that he wanted to do another Superman film. He had particular reservations about a reprisal of the role if it was going to be treated as a farce, which had been the case with the third film. This was an approach that Reeve felt was disrespectful to fans and the source material. The new producers then offered Reeve a deal he couldn't refuse. In exchange for starring in the fourth Superman film... Reeve was promised story input. There was also talk of having Reeve direct a fifth Superman film should the fourth one prove successful, and they would produce any project of his choosing. 
Reeve accepted, and in exchange, Golan and Globus produced the crime drama Street Smart. Unfortunately, uh, Golan and Globus had so many other films in their pipeline at the time that their money was spread too thinly to properly accommodate what became Superman 4, forcing the film's veteran director, Sidney J. Fury, to cut corners everywhere. The film was released July 24, 1987 in the United States and Canada, and grossed $5.6 million on its opening weekend, playing in 1,511 theaters and ranking number four in the box office. It ended up grossing a total of $15.6 million in the United States and Canada. Now, that's less than three times what it got on just the opening weekend, so I'm pretty safe in, a, in saying uh, that I can see why people say it was a bomb. Uh, Richard Donner, who had been fired from Superman 2, was offered the director's chair, but he declined. Richard Lester was also offered the chance to direct the movie, but also declined. It's unknown which one was asked first. Originally, the film had two nuclear men. The first, dubbed Nuclear Man 1, wore a black costume, and his scenes were filmed but eventually cut, allegedly because previews revealed a number of serious special effects errors. The deleted footage was considered for a fifth Superman film. Now, this is available on the special edition DVD for Superman 4. I think it's on disc 2. Uh, it's available in that massive Superman movie collection that has all the movies from 1 to Returns. Uh, and I believe uh, when they released that tin, they also put the special edition of Superman 4 out separately. Uh, but the some of the special features includes the cut scenes of Nuclear Man 1. It's a little weird. He's weird. So, yeah, it's interesting. Um, I could not find anything about Ned Bating reprising his role as Otis. But apparently... Uh, well, let's see. I could not find anything about Ned Beatty reprising his role as Otis. He either couldn't or didn't want to do the movie, and the producers didn't want Otis in the movie. But I did find out that Peter Boyle was the first choice to play Otis. I could be wrong, but I don't think Otis would have the same appeal to us if Ned Beatty hadn't played Otis. I love Peter Boyle, but I can't see him as Otis. That could have been interesting. Hmm. See, that's one of those things which, like, what if? Because if Peter Boyle did it and we found out that Ned Beatty had been up for the role, would we still be like, I don't know if Ned Beatty could have done it? I don't know. Anyway, also gave up on finding if the farm was the same as in, as in Superman the movie. I sort of doubt it uh, as I think one movie was filmed in Alberta while the other was filmed in England. Okay, I don't know exactly where Superman 1 was filmed, but I've heard that it was mostly filmed in Canada to, to cut costs and to save money. That's where the farm is. Uh, because they uh, used Canada as Kansas. Um, so it's possible that it is still the same farm, but I'm not sure. Um, and last but not least, Russell left another comment for episode 14. Guess he liked it. Uh, and he says, Hello, wanted to let you know that I really enjoyed episode 14, Geeking to the Radio. Huh, see, I guess he did. Uh, it made me think back to my junior high and high school days waking up to the radio before school. We didn't have any elaborate radio shows or personalities around here, but I do remember listening to a guy named Bill Mahoney on, st on station WHAR. He would have trivia contests every morning where the winner won a free breakfast at McDonald's. I managed to win at least ten times, and don't forget in those days we had a rotary phone. 
So I would dial the first six numbers with my finger ready to dial the seventh until I heard the question. If I knew it, I dialed. If I didn't, I hung up. Those were fun times even if I had to get ready to go to school afterwards. Just wanted to share. Hope all is well with you. Really enjoying the GeekCast. Well, thanks, Russell. Rotary phones, well, you know, they're kind of still fun. Um, I know when I was a little kid, when my mom was in the hospital, you know, giving birth to my siblings, uh, her hospital room inevitably had a rotary phone that I played with a lot when I was visiting. Um, And um, keep in mind, I was three or four, five age range. Uh, Also, my great-grandmother's house in Virginia, she had a rotary phone. And of course, I played with it there. Never never lifted the headset because I knew better uh, but I did play with the rotary part um, and I'm not going to lie I, I, I still kind of like rotary phones and I'm 32 now so yeah I have no problem with them uh, actually I'm almost 33 yeah um, and that's it for the comment for the for comments so I want to thank you all for writing in and for the email and for the uh, iTunes review, that really helps out. Uh, please feel free to email into the show at superbronze1970 at gmail.com or to leave a review on iTunes. After a couple of promos, we will come back with JLA number 10. The Bronze Age of Comics. An era largely ignored as far as Superman goes, and an era that some consider to still be part of the Silver Age. Sure, a lot of people know about the Kryptonite Nevermore storyline, where all the Kryptonite on Earth is turned to iron and Clark Kent goes from a newspaper reporter to a TV reporter. Then there are the Alan Moore stories, for the man who has everything and whatever happens to the man of tomorrow. But in an era that lasted 15 years, surely there's more to the Bronze Age than that, right? Well, my name is Charlie Niemeyer, and every other week, I shine the spotlight on this long-overlooked era of Superman in the Bronze Age. Featuring such stories as the return of Jonathan Kent, two meetings with the Amazing Spider-Man, the Phantom Zone miniseries, the enlarging of Krypton, and more. Plus, J. David Weeder also joins in to take a look at Superboy's Bronze Age adventures. So join in the fun at www.supermanandthebronzeage.com and www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Throughout its history, people have found this place disquieting. Strange and unexplained phenomena run rampant, so much so that it's been called the city that lives by night. And the city that lives by night needs a darker form of protector. Black Talon. Please don't kill me! You tell them all, Nocturne is the Talon's hunting ground. Your kind had best look elsewhere for prey. Nightbreaker. What was this? Some sort of joke? No! Gloria, this sounds crazy, I know, but she did shoot me. Something happened. I'm still not sure what, but people don't recognize unless I truly concentrate on their wanting to see me. It's like I'm invisible. Fairy Man. The ghosts you refer to have done more for me than you two have. They've given me my sight back. <laughs> They've given me better than my sight back. Dreamcatcher. Witches, warlocks, mages, magicians, shamans. Call us what you like. It's all the same. We've helped when we can, eluded those too ignorant to understand that magic isn't evil. And it's made us sensitive to others who have magic running in their veins. A quartet of heroes standing together must face a new menace. This can be painless, you know. You ain't putting the front on me, Slag. Just tell your shot, yeah? 
I was hoping you'd say that. Who is going to use the roughest elements of the city. You that rose red bitch? That's right. I'm not even mad at you for adding the bitch part. Because I am. And I know you guys are some of the nastiest, toughest, roughest, meanest bastards in this town. Am I right? Yeah! Yeah! Good. Because I have need of you. To send this city. Come on! To end tonight. Down new roads to hell. New Roads to Hell, the first Shadow Legion adventure by Thomas DJ. A new novel coming soon from Airship 27. For more information, including character sketches and behind-the-scenes information, visit the Nocturne Travel Agency at welcometonocturne.blogspot.com and airship27.com. Meanwhile, at the Hall of Justice... Okay. Now, before we get into JLA 10, I, uh, I need to bring people a little bit up to speed on some stuff about what was going on in the comics around the time this issue was released. Okay. Um, some things to keep in mind. Uh, now, if you recall, uh, at the end of the last issue of JLA, number 9, when they did the little uh, prologue for this issue, there was a jump ahead of a few months. Well, here's what happened. In that couple of months, well, actually some pretty big stuff happened. Uh, first of all, Wonder Woman died. Uh, John Byrne was doing the Wonder Woman book at the time, and he had Wonder Woman die. She eventually kind of uh, be- not grows up. She eventually in- turns into, becomes the goddess of truth, I believe, and then comes back from being goddess of truth to just being one woman again but that's going to be a little bit uh but yeah for a little bit there she was dead uh this is also this that storyline also led led us to finding out that queen hippolyta her mother uh had been had actually been the wonder woman back in world war ii therefore making basically all of the just justice society stories and the um Wonder Woman stories of the Golden Age basically in continuity again. Uh, she will have a role, uh, Queen Hippolyta as Wonder Woman will have a role to play in JLA coming up in the future. Not quite yet, but um, she will resume the mantle of Wonder Woman temporarily while her daughter's dead. Also, as far as The Flash, around this time Mark Wade and Brian Augustin took a slight well, about a year-long sabbatical from the Flash title. They used this time to write the life story of the Flash, which was basically a book that was sort of introduced way back in 1993, I believe, uh, during the Return of Barry Allen storyline, and also, and it was supposed to be written by Iris Allen, which is how Wally knew that Iris was alive somewhere. Um, but while they were gone, they were. Uh, by the way, you should check out that story. It's it's mo- it's mostly prose, but it does have some artwork by Gil Kane in it. It's really pretty. I highly recommend it. Anyway, uh, after while they were busy taking care of that and you know gearing up for their next big Flash storyline, uh, they were they had some a couple of writers come in to take their place for a little while uh, for that year. Uh, Grant Morrison and Mark Miller. Now what they did. Uh, their very first storyline set up something that is basically still being used, well, not 
and not in the new 52, but was basically something that was being used in Flash all the way up till the end of the uh, till the start of the new 52, and that is the idea of the Speed Force costume. The very first storyline involved uh, involved Flash going against um, basically this villain that inhabited costumes, and at some point in the story, Wally literally breaks both of his legs. Or he does. He doesn't break them, but both of his legs ended end up broken. And with some with using a lot of concentration, he's able to create a new suit based on the speed force that allows him to run around some more. And at first, it's this yellow, bright, glowing yellow costume that actually is a little more reminiscent of his Kid Flash costume than the Flash. Uh, and he say he stops the costume guy and ends up having to go up against Mirror Master. And after fighting Mirror Master, he at some point in there he goes through a prism that splits him up into multiple colors of the Flash. So then he turns around and runs back through the prism and comes out as Flash in the traditional costume. But this time, it doesn't look quite as shiny, and the eye uh, you can see his eyes again. But otherwise, it's still Wally's typical costume. Uh, that that became his main costume. He gets replaced uh, for one issue because his legs still needed to heal. Uh, Jay Garrick does take over the title for one issue, uh, and actually fights the Reverse Golden Age Flash, which was weird, and meets up with the Thinker. That was cool. Uh, it's a fun issue. Uh, but th- these are fun stories, but um, that's why. There is a line in this issue where Kyle mentions that Wonder Woman's dead and Flash is injured. So I just wanted to bring up, bring everybody up to speed. That's where they're gone. They've gone. As uh, also, Aztec was a comic also done by Grant Morrison and Mark Miller. It ran for ten issues and got canceled. In the at the like about the final page of the last issue, uh, the Justice League show up and offer him membership in the JLA, which of course he takes. Uh, They offer him uh, membership in the JLA, which he takes. So by the time this first issue starts, he's already part of the JLA. For, yeah, various reasons. Um, So that should bring you up to speed on everything you need to know before we jump into this issue. Also, the cover to this issue uh, is basically a mirror image of the JLA secret files, which we already talked about uh, because it had that little origin story in it. Um, it's basically a mirror image. The difference is that uh, the original had the actual members of the JLA, and this, of course, has the evil purplish-looking JLA that we saw at the end of JLA number 9 in the prologue. So that leads up us into JLA number 10 which was released or which has a cover date of late September 1997 it was released on July 30th 1997 with a cover price of $1.95 in the US and $2.75 in Canada the cover is by Howard Porter and John Dell and colored by Liquid and I already mentioned um, what it looks like but they get some of the colors different and in the issue basically everyone's just purple and green. The skin is green. The per- the costumes and stuff are basically different shades of purple. On the cover, they kind of just slightly darken some of the colors. Uh, like, for example, Martian Manhunter is a 
blue or green. His cost, his cape is purple, and the red is a, just a darker red. Flash's costume is a darker red and a darker yellow. Uh, Kyle's costume is all green, and the dark spot, the dark parts, are like a darker green. The evil Batman's costume is completely purple. Uh, and Aquaman looks about the same, except they gave him red hair, and the scales on his pants are also the same shade of red. It, it's a little weird. Uh, they don't follow the color guide very well. Maybe they didn't have a color guide when they did the cover image. I don't know, but yeah, it looks a little different when you open up and see the different color, the different way it's colored. Uh, anyway, okay. The title of the story is Rock of Ages Prelude, Genesis and Revelations. Uh, writer Grant Morrison, penciled, penciler Howard Porter, inker John Dell, colorist Pat Garahay, Pat Garahy, uh, Separations, Heroic Age, letterer Ken Lopez, associate editor Peter Tomasi, and editor Dan Raspler. At 11.20 a.m. in Star City, blasts from above kill people and destroy buildings. On the roof of a nearby building, purple and green versions of the JLA are gathered, with the blasts apparently coming from this purple version of Superman and the Batplane. Meanwhile, in the Watchtower, Aztec notices something on his monitors and tries to relay the info to John, but he's a bit at the or he's a bit busy at the moment coordinating the response to the Star City crisis. Setting up a telepathic link amongst all the members of the JLA, Superman, Batman, Green Lantern, Green Arrow, and Aquaman quickly reach the city. And while Aquaman is busy fighting his double, Green Arrow stills his mind, figures out a pattern that the fake Flash is running in, and shoots an arrow to where the speedster's knee will be, knocking him out of commission. While doing this, Aquaman uh, tries a telepathic attack against the fake Aquaman, and his mind seems familiar. Hmm. Uh, with Flash's reaction to the arrow and what Aquaman just found out, the team figure out that these doubles are just hard-lined constructs trying to learn their moves. Meanwhile, the pseudo-Batman is busy laughing maniacally and bombing the city until the real Batman shows up and uses lasers to take him down. Of course, since they're basically holograms, this causes the fake Batplane to actually break up into several little Batplanes, because, you know, just smaller bits of the same information. Meanwhile, up above, a streak of purple energy heads straight for Green Lantern and Superman. But Superman's new powers allow him to absorb energy, so he just stands there and absorbs his doppelganger. Meanwhile, Green Arrow is under attack from the fake Martian Manhunter and Wonder Woman, and has just had his quiver blasted off of his back. Fortunately, Green Lantern arrives and gives him a construct arrow, which, after being fired, actually changes into a barrage of arrows, uh as well as an energy shield that surrounds Green Arrow and absorbs the doppelgangers. Back at the Watchtower, Jean heads out in one of the captured Martian jump ships from back in the first storyline to investigate what Aztec has spotted earlier, a massive energy wave traveling faster than the speed of light. Back on Earth, while Superman gets an earful from a concerned citizen about cleaning up the mess, Green Lantern heads up to search for broadcast facilities in orbit around the planet. The source, a large skull-shaped satellite, uh, is there, but Green Lantern can't see it because another telepath is rerouting all visual input from the satellite to the part of his brain that handles sent messages, and therefore he smells something funny. Which should be a notice, something he should notice, because he's in space. 
At this point, it is revealed that Lex Luthor is the new leader of this new Injustice Gang, all the members of which were in control of the various members of the fake JLA. And with the element of surprise, Lex's strategies, and a strange glowing red stone with a blue flame in the center of it, they can now prepare for the corporate takeover of the JLA. Meanwhile, in deep space, Martian Manator has reached the energy wave. It's a massive wave completely devoid of all sense of hope, and it's heading towards Earth. Uh, let's see. First, okay, as far as notes, let's go, uh, we'll do this page by page. First of all, I want to point out, before we do page by page notes, the title of the story, Genesis and Revelations. Genesis has to do with a an upcoming storyline. Uh, well, I'll go ahead and say it now. That energy wave that Martian Manhunter checks out is the Genesis wave, which plays part, uh, which plays a part in the big DC crossover that starts ne- the next month, uh, Genesis, written by John Byrne and drawn by Ron Wagner. I haven't read it yet, so I won't be mentioning that on here. And there really, other than this issue, there's really not a tie-in to it, so there's really not much of a point to it. Uh, but Genesis was one of the big month uh the big fifth week crossover th- events that um affected most a lot of the DC universe um and it was somewhat of a well not it, it's not one of the fan favorites we'll put it this way that way uh but that's what the genesis wave is and uh that's where the genesis part of the title comes in and you know since some things are revealed they use revelations those are also would be the first book and the last book of the bible so you can see how that works uh anyway as for the notes page 1 panel 1 uh there's a deli called deli diaz and the sign says sorry we are moving to a new location uh, this, of course, references the fact that Ruben Diaz, who had been editing the book up through issue 9, has left the book and is moving on to some other place. Also on this page, while you can't see much of anything else where the blasts are coming from, you do see a shadow of the bat plane, so that's kind of interesting. Uh, also, just to keep in mind, Star City was the home of the Flash. Or, not the Flash. Star City was the home of Green Arrow back during the Ali or Oliver Queen days. So that was cool. Uh, page, well, two and three, where we get to see the fake JLA. That's a beautiful image. Uh, I would love to see a similar image of the JLA, you know, of the actual JLA in the proper colors, but this is very pretty. Uh, page four. First of all, I like the reflection on Aztec's helmet of all the monitor stuff he's looking at. It's pretty cool, uh, since it is a shiny gold helmet, golden helmet. Uh, also, the next panel, it appears that Martian Manhunter is doing some kind of performing a scan on somebody, and it appears to be a member of Starfleet, judging by the badge on his shirt. I mean, the, the, the outfit doesn't match, but he's got the Star Trek Starfleet badge on his shirt. Uh, even though, I don't know how he's scanning them, because, you know, there's no one else in the watchtower, and it's not scanning Aztec. Um, page 5, this is our first telepathic link-up of the series, which will continue to be used uh, basically f- until Jean is no longer a member of the team, uh, which basically all the way through the end of this title, almost. Uh, it's even beyond Morrison's run. Uh, po- page 6, I feel really bad for Connor. Okay, first he's had to deal with the key, basically by himself. Now he's having... It's him and an arrow versus a speedster. 
who is busy plucking off people faster than he can blink. So I feel... I mean, poor kid has been thrown into the deep end. Uh, page eight. Um, hmm. Now, we've got a fake Batman laughing maniacally with a giant grin on his face. wonder if it's controlling him. Page 11. This is Grant Morrison finally getting to really play with Superman's new powers. Morrison will really have fun with them over the next several issues. Uh, obviously, as, we've, as I've mentioned numerous times, he... You know, they, the the new powers kind of was sprung were sprung on him. So he and he already had several issues done before the new powers were well known. Also, this is where we finally get to start seeing. Uh, well, maybe not this issue, but this is where we finally get to start seeing Superman's costume drawn completely correctly, with the uh, S shield also on his back. Uh, page twelve. Now Connor has to take on a fake Martian Manhunter and Wonder Woman. Damn. Uh, anyway, page 16. After joking about how Connor reminds everyone of Ollie while he's complaining about all the devastation, um, then a blonde guy comes up and he sports a goatee and also complains about the devastation. It's like, after Connor reminds everyone of Ollie, Ollie comes up. Maybe he wasn't dead. I don't know. Anyway, um... In page 21, I already mentioned that the wave that John encounters is the Genesis wave. Also, page 17, I skipped one. Uh, the fact that it's a skull-shaped satellite, I believe, would be in reference to the Legion of Doom uh, because of the skull-shaped base that they had on the Challenge of the Super Friends. So I think that's kind of in reference to that. And it also explains the skull shapes uh, on the symbols of all the pseudo-JLA. Uh, but this is a quick issue to read through. It was all basically a big fight, and then it's over. Um, most of it... Um, yeah. M for the most part, I'm, th I'm almost wondering if it was just filler issue due to the adding of the Genesis stuff and kind of it being a prologue to the big Genesis what you want to call it, uh, event. Um, since the main kickoff to the story begins next issue, this is just kind of a prelude, like I said. Uh, still, it's a pretty fun read. Uh, it still fits with the rest of the story pretty well. Uh, again, the other, th the other thing that makes me think that is at the end of the issue, um, Lex Luthor just tells all the other villains, you know, return to your hideouts or whatever it is you do and wait for my signal and prepare for the corporate takeover of the Justice League. Why wouldn't they keep up the attack? Why stop? It just seems kind of weird. Um, I, I, I mentioned Aztec coming in. It would have been nice to see Aztec brought in in the pages of the JLA, especially since it actually happened in the final pages of the last issue of a canceled title. But, you know, what are you going to do? Um, I'm, I'm almost half wondering if when they found out that it was going to be canceled that he was that they brought him into this book specifically to kind of finish out his storyline because a lot of revelations as far as Aztec are also brought up in this Rock of Ages storyline. I also want to point out that it was really cool. I happen to remember this from reading it. Uh, basically... Um, Lex Luthor here is the tall, strong, yet bald businessman that we've come to know. This would be right after he was finally cleared 
of all charges stemming from the destruction of Metropolis. How did they do this? Well, every well, if you've read if you read Superman when they did the destruction of Metropolis shortly before Zero Hour, which would be like three years ago, real time. Um, well, when the issue came out, uh, it was revealed that Lex Luthor had been cloned, and it was the clo- Lex Luthor the second clone that did the destruction. So basically, although Lex, this is the real Lex Luthor now. Uh, he, they created another sick-looking clone to come in and basically take the rap. And so the real Luther was cleared of all charges. And in fact, at the end, he says he's going to take on the JLA now. He'll be back. It was kind of a little nod. Um, but yeah, that's all I've got. The art in here, there's a few places where it looks a little wonky, but for the most part, it's pretty phenomenal. Uh, even some of the detail, like when you see Luther holding the stone... Uh, it's almost a see-through stone, and wherever you see his hand touching it, on the other side, there's this little image to indicate, you know, where his hand is actually coming in contact with it, the as it's, you know, the pressure. Um, but now I'm going to take another quick break, and when we come back, I'm going to do something I haven't been able to do on this show ever, because I was covering multiple issues at a time. We're going to look at the ads. Yeah! You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the Quarterbin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. It was the dawn of the third age of comics, 15 years after the rise of the Comics Code Authority. The Bronze Age was a dream given form. Its goal? To portray superheroes in a way that was socially relevant by tackling real-world issues. It's a catch-all, a place to explore monsters, demons, gunslingers, gods, and superheroes alike. Writers and artists wrapped in house styles of sophisticated realism, creating the stuff of legends. There is no assurance of quality, but it's our last best hope for comic books. This is a retrospective of the true golden age. The year is 1970. The name of the podcast, Uncovering the Bronze Age. Tune into our feed for regular content at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. Also home to the Quarterbin Podcast and the Short Box Showcase. Meanwhile, at the Hall of Justice... Okay, ads. Now, bear with me, because <laughs> I'm used to looking at ads from the 70s, not ads from the 90s. Okay, first up, uh, free on boxes of Nerds Candy, Batman Detective Cards. Now, these cards look beautiful. These are Batman versus some of his biggest villains, uh, Two-Face, Joker, Bane, and the Penguin are shown on here, with art by Norm Brayfogle, and it looks beautiful. 
Uh, apparently there's eight of them, and you're supposed to find out who stole the Gotham City Diamond. So I'm guessing all the cards, uh, since there's eight villains listed, I'm guessing each card shows him against each of these villains. Uh, it's the Joker, the Penguin, Poison Ivy, Dr. Freeze, or Mr. Freeze, uh, Two-Face, Bane, the Riddler, or Catwoman. Plus, you can get uh, you can also get an exclusive Batman basketball. This is 97... I believe Batman and Robin is getting ready to come out, so that's probably part of what this is about. Plus, you know, Batman's pretty popular. Um, but yeah, I love the, the art on these is nice. The coloring looks great, and it's Batman in the current costume of the time, which basically was kind of his old-school costume, but um, colored darker and without the blue underwear, or bl the blue uh, shorts, whatever you want to call them. Uh, let's see, the next ad, there's more ads in this than the, there used to be in the 70s. There's a always poppin' ad for Coca-Cola, which has uh, some very, ex well, I don't want to call it extreme, but some very, um, uh, a lot of liberties are taken on the art here based on human anatomy. Uh, but yeah, it looks, it's pretty cool, it's just a bunch of kids on bikes. Granted, they're all wearing helmets, but they're all also, you know, they've also got a Coca-Cola bottle with them, which, um... Yeah, these days, I don't think they could do that. Uh, next up is an ad for War Gods, which was a video game made from Midway for mature audiences. Uh, and it basically talks about CY, CY5. Flesh-covered cyborg seeks unbalanced, red-blooded, the more the better, humans to fight the ultimate battle for universal supremacy. High pain threshold needed to withstand systematic delivery of lightning-fast punches to the neck and face, steel-toed kicks to the head and groin, and flesh-burning lasers that melt mortal skin like butter. They don't make cyborgs the way they used to. They make them deadlier. And in the background, you see a guy that is, you know, half-human and half-robot. So, actually, the robot side, it actually kind of looks like a two-faced metallo kind of thing going on here. I never played War Gods. Sounds like I probably wouldn't want to. I'm not a fan of fighting games. Although, if you haven't played it yet, the Injustice game is actually kind of cool for a fighting game. Uh, the next ad, uh, baseball cards. Cards were really big in the 90s. Uh, and it just says, awesome. Uh, they were selling 3D cards at Denny's. Um, there's 29 collectible cards, each with two-sided, in-your-face, multiple-dimensionality. Only 59 cents each with the purchase of any entree and non-alcoholic beverage. Offers only available from June 26, 1997 to September 3, 1997, or while supplies last, only at Denny's. And there's a special Jackie Robinson collector's card celebrating the 50th anniversary of ja Jackie Robinson breaking into Major League Baseball. Which is kind of ironic, because I believe as I'm recording this, there's a movie about to come out, or has already come out, and is about to come out on DVD, based on that story. So that's kind of cool. Uh, and of, yeah. And if, in case you're curious and you're a baseball fan, the card that they show for 3D is Ken Caminiti from the San Diego Padres. Uh, next ad is... Uh, basically a one-page ad for the movie Mimic, starring Mira Savino, Jerry, Jeremy Northam, Josh Brolin, Jeff Murray Abraham, and Charles Dutton. For thousands of years, man has been evolution's greatest creation. Until now. 
This summer, brace yourselves for the ultimate battle between man and nature. So there you go. Uh, the next ad page... I love how the ads take up the whole page instead of half one ad, half another. Um, Racing Champions Mint has three and a quarter die-cast replicas of uh, favorite dream cars with classic details, exacting paint jobs, hoods that open, full interiors, finished engines, unique rims, and rubber tires. They even come with a special display stand that features their hood ornament designs. You've never seen anything like it? And you'll never have an opportunity like this one to order them again. Because with this one-time offer, you can get six cars for just $29.95 per set while supplies last. What? Okay, each set has six cars. The sets 10 and 11 have already sold out. I'm guessing, since this starts at 7, I'm guessing 1 through 6 have also sold out. Um... I'm not going to go through what all they have on here, but, I mean... They look pretty good for tiny little cars. I'm sorry. I, I mean, I don't. I, I'm just a person that. I mean, cars aren't my favorite thing. I'm gonna put that right out there. But I can't see spending thirty bucks to get six toy cars that really you want to keep on a display. I also can't see spending fifteen dollars on a action figure that I would just keep on a shelf either even though I've got several action figures. Moving right along, um, remember Tang? It's the official breakfast drink of Major League Soccer and has an official, and has an offer that scores a free 5-inch meter, uh, meter mitre, yeah, a mini soccer ball from Meter Miter with a Tang label and $1.75 postage and handling. And the ad shows a uh, a monkey that's caught it with its foot and is holding a container of tang. And uh, there's another little image of another monkey holding, or it could be the same monkey, holding tang, but in a referee outfit with a big whistle. And it says, Tang, it's a kick in the glass. Really? I think this is right about when Major League Soccer was actually starting up, too. So, Now, this next ad is actually part of a two-part ad that with the second part being on the back cover um, but it's an axe and on the axe blade part it's a two blade it's an axe with the blade on both sides uh, and you see it what it's what appears to be like ancient type armor army on horseback riding up um, you know with swords or crosses or something and it says only one man can send the forces of darkness back to hell and then we'll get the other part when I get to the back page um, the next page has a uh, we've got an elephant dunking a person head first into a can of something uh, somehow this has to do with mellow yellow the drink that is also available in cans they called it mellow yellow Ooh. All right, then we have the letters page. Then the inside back cover is a Skittles commercial telling you to taste the rainbow. And basically you have a rainbow with a faucet on it that is got Skittles coming out of it. That's a normal-ish looking ad. That's nice. The back cover shows 
Kevin Sorbo holding that axe from the previous... Uh, actually, it looks like he's just holding a sword, but it's basically the sword also has the same image that the axe had back on that earlier page, and it says, Cull rocks. Kevin Sorbo is Cull the Conqueror. Universal Pictures Production. Coming soon. It also started, starred Tia Carrera, Thomas Ian Griffith, and Lightfoot, as well as Harvey Firestein and Karina Lombard. Rated PG-13. Parents, strong, parents strongly cautioned. And that's JLA number 10. Uh, real quick, let's go into Elsewhere in the DC Universe uh, to see what else came out this month. Now, July 97, now you, if you recall, the cover said late September 97. Well, JLA number 9 came out early September 97, uh, which was the finale of the two-part key storyline. Batman Shadow of the Bat uh, had a story by Alan Grant, Norm Bravefogel, and Stan Walk. Uh, let's see, Flash had an annual. Uh, let's see, number 10, in fact. Uh, Green Lantern number 90, we learned the story about what... Kyle was doing when he ended up in that alley to pick up the ring back way back in Green Lantern 50. This is Green Lantern 90. Uh, issue 2 of The Kints came out. I believe that's an Elseworlds storyline telling a story about the lifeline of The Kints. Uh, maybe it's not Elseworlds. Well, I'll be darned. It's not Elseworlds. Uh, basically, it's kind of telling the story of the history of The Kints. The the you know, the Kent family line going way back. This is Old West. Uh, the hardcover edition of Kingdom Come came out this month. Uh, Power of Shazam number 30 came out with Captain Marvel fighting against like a Black Panther person. Oh, and dude, the thing's claws sliced right through Captain Marvel's costume and they're making him bleed. That can't be good. Um, yeah. I haven't read that one. I need to read those. I, I, if Dave Weeder is listening, I apologize. I have not read as much of that as I would like. Starman number 34 came out. And this is War in the Mind of Solomon Grundy. Guest starring Batman and the Golden Age Green, Green Lantern, who I believe at this, part was, or at this point was being referred to as Sentinel. Still. Uh, let's see. Steel number 42. Uh, let's see. Something called Critical Conditions. And it looks like he's got a bunch of yelling people behind him and a bunch of sick people in front of him, and he doesn't look happy about it. Uh, moving right along. Superman Adventures number 11. Superman is sick and appears to be dying and is sweating. This is a good issue. If you have not read Superman Adventures, which was the comic based on the animated series coming out at the time, I highly recommend it, at least up through when Mark Miller leaves this title. Because uh, the first 12, uh, well, other than the first issue, the rest of the first 12 issues are done by Scott McCloud, who did a really good job with the title, uh, with art by Rick Perchette. Uh Then there's some issues that are a little eh. And then Scott or Mike or Mark Miller comes on, and does some great stuff on Superman. It, it, you wouldn't even know it's the same Mark Miller. 
but yeah, I would highly recommend it. Uh, Superman Mo- Madman Hullabaloo number two came out, which was a uh, Dark Horse Superman or Dark Horse DC crossover teaming Superman up with Madman, written and drawn by Mike Allred. It's a pretty cool story, also. Uh, and this, of course, despite uh, the fact that we're in the midst of the Energy Superman, the the, the Madman story features classic Superman. Also, I should point out that the Superman Adventures book was the only way you could get class, a uh, normal classic Superman uh, if you didn't like the energy Superman. Uh, Superman Man of Steel, number 71, features Superman versus Bod. And, uh, apparently this is part of the Superman Revenge Squad storyline, too. Adventures of the DC Universe, number 16, presents a story featuring Aquaman this time plus a Power Girl backup. Now that book, if you don't know, uh, basically since the, you know, we had cart- the actual animated series featuring Superman and Batman, and the books, I guess, were selling pretty well, so they decided to do one where they would showcase other people, other members of the DCU in animated series style. Uh, basically, for the most part, uh, other than the Superman stories or the Batman stories, the characters basically were in, uh, following basically the same continuity they were in their regular books in the regular DCU, they were just drawn to look a little more animated. Um, and of course, they had to make it up for most of them because most of them didn't have official artwork by Bruce Tim. Um, but yeah, it, it would feature. Usually, they featured two stories: a main story featuring one character and then a backup featuring somebody else. It was re- it was a pretty cool book. It didn't last too long, but it was a pretty fun book. Uh, let's see. Uh, Animaniacs number 29 features the return of Hello Nurse. Um, let's see. Batman number 546 features the Batman versus the Joker and the Demon. Azrael number 33 featuring Angel Unleashed. Uh, Green Arrow number 124. We're actually getting to the near the end of that series. Actually, it has a really cool cover where the lantern, where the logo takes up most of it, and you get a pretty cool image of uh, Green Arrow getting ready to fire a laser. A laser getting ready to fire an arrow. Uh, Impulse number twenty nine is very much approved by the Comics Code Authority as he's leaning up against a giant sign that says that, and the cover just says, "It's okay, kids. The comics approved." It's actually a really cool cover. I like it. Uh, Jack Kirby's Fourth World number seven came out this month, as well as the JLA Gallery. Um, Legionnaires number fifty-two features Leviathan, which is a girl. Uh, let's see. Nightwing number twelve came out this month. Aquaman number thirty-six. All hail the king. It's actually a pretty cool cover. Adventures of Superman 550 came out this month, uh, which basically the main story of this issue features Jimmy Olsen about to go on TV to reveal the secret identity of Superman, only to finally realize just at the last minute that that's not a good idea and uh, says it's nobody and basically it ruins him as far as being a TV reporter, and he has uh, I believe Indergang after him for all the stuff he's done. 
Plus, the Guardian takes on Intergang, and this would be the trial of Lex Luthor I was just telling telling you about, where that they he gets off on a basically a strange technicality. Teen Titans no, Annual Number One came out. This would be the Teen Titans uh, that was a series by Dan Jurgens that started off being inked by uh, George Perez. Uh, the art on this issue on this issue is actually done by John Cassidy. That's I've never seen this before, uh, but basically, uh, it's even though Dan Jurgens originally wanted to do the main Titans again, he was told he couldn't. So it's basically a lot of new Titans that you've really never heard of before, plus uh, the Adam who had been reduced to being a teenager. Think or not reduced? I didn't. It doesn't come out right, but who had uh, basically gone back to being a teenager uh, thanks to the events of Zero Hour. But he got a new costume out of the deal, so it's not all bad. Uh, Superman 127 <laughs> has uh, this is really cool uh, Superman shows up but uh, meanwhile let's see and while there's a poll on the Daily Planet asking if the new Superman can be trusted Bibbo is punching the main guy from the Outsiders bike gang out of a window at the Ace of Clubs And he's saying, take back what you said about my favorite Superman, or about my pal, Superman. That's pretty funny. Bebo's awesome. Supergirl number 13 uh, has Supergirl... Let's see, looks like Supergirl is trying to fight someone in her dreams. Um, And this would be an issue where the covers were still being done by Gary Frank and Cam Smith, but the art inside was being done by Leonard Kirk. Cam Smith, and is actually guest written by Darren J. Vicenzo instead of Peter David. Uh, let's see. Sovereign 7, number 26, guest stars Hitman, for better or for worse. Sovereign 7 was the big book by Chris Claremont in the DCU at the time. Uh, Batman and Robin Adventures, number 22, features Batman and Robin against Two-Face. Long Halloween number 10 came out this month uh, basically for Independence Day featuring Batman and Catwoman and Catwoman speaking of Catwoman in her her main title got its second annual Detective Comics 713 uh, let's see this is well I'm not exactly sure who he's up against but he's in the he's in the sewers and it's a really fun cover by Graham Nolan I miss Graham Nolan's art. JLA Wildcats number one came out this month. That was written by Grant Morrison, but I'm not covering it because it wasn't the main title. I apologize. But yeah, that came out this month. It's actually I say it's JLA Wildcats number one. It was a one shot, but they call it number one because you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> okay, this isn't a superhero book, but Looney Tunes number thirty-two came out, featuring Jerkules. And apparently it has something to do with uh, Daffy Duck. Superboy number 43 came out this month, and the cover features uh, Superboy flying around with a target on his forehead. So that doesn't look good. This was uh, in that short little uh, transition period where Ron Martz had left the book, but Carl Kiesel had not come back to the book yet, so Barbara Kiesel was writing it with Sal Buscema on art. At least on this issue. 
Um, Major Bummer number two came out this month. If you ever, if you haven't read that, apparently it's good. I haven't read it either, but um, apparently it features a guy with superpowers that doesn't want to be a superhero. And it was some of the first work by Tom Mankey, uh, and or Monkey, however you say it, or Monk, uh, who is a big deal at DC right now. In fact, he's doing the art for the JLA title as far as uh, for in the uh, Twilight of the Gods storyline going on right now. He was the major artist, uh, the main artist of Green Lantern since about Blackest Night until the end of Jeff Johns' run on the title. So, yeah, he's he's big name right now, but uh, this would have been where, around where he got his start. And that was before he got onto the Superman title and then also worked on JLA when Joe Kelly took over. Uh, Action Comics number uh, 737. If you recall, I told you about Jimmy at the end of the last of the end of that Adventures of Superman issue uh, he uh, this is still him being chased around um, and even though the cover says it's written by Stern Mark Wade actually wrote that issue uh, Batman Chronicles The Gauntlet number one came out this month this is basically the story of Dick Grayson's first night as Robin it was just a one issue thing but uh, basically, yeah, basically, it's Robin's first night. If if he can get through the gauntlet, he could be Robin. At, you know, he could continue being Robin. Uh, Batman Legends of the Dark Knight number ninety eight came out with part one of the two part steps storyline by Paul Jenkins and Sean Phillips. Uh, let's see, Challengers of the Unknown number eight came out this month. Which doesn't really have anything to do with the challenges of the unknown you would know, but is also part two of the last of the three-part Last Days storyline. Uh, now, remember all that stuff I said about the Flash? Well, apparently, when this issue came out, it hadn't happened yet. Flash number one twenty-nine came out this month, and it is the end of the Hell to Pay storyline. Uh, which was the last storyline by Wade and Augustine before they went on their sabbatical. Basically, uh, Neron comes back and causes all kinds of trouble for the Flash, uh, and uh, inf- including bringing back the rogues who had mostly been dead by this point. And making Wally forget about uh, Linda, who was his focus and kept him from just kind of fading away into the speed force uh, Hitman number 18 came out this month Enter section 8 now I didn't really read this but I know some people, a lot of people that did so that's why I'm mentioning it now uh, let's see also Transmetropolitan had its very first issue this month and Invisibles number 8 came out this month those are kind of vertical titles although actually Transmetropolitan was from Helix depending on how you want to look at it. Uh, the JLA Secret Files came out this month. I f- covered that a, f- a few episodes ago. Uh, Nightwing, The Ties That Bind uh, trade paperback came out. This is basically covers uh, the one shot that re- marked Alfred's return to the Bat titles after basically quitting, thanks to uh, Bruce not wanting to give up while his back was broken. And also the Nightwing miniseries in which he got that his new black and blue costume and traded in that bright blue and yellow one. Superboy and the Ravers number 13 came out this month, as did The Adventures of Superman Annual number 9. 
Catwoman number 49, uh, Hellblazer set 117, Impulse plus Gross Out number 1, uh, which was Impulse plus number 1 featuring Gross Out. I believe uh, that's a character from Scare Tactics. They started doing some of these to have uh, more well-known characters plus uh, characters that aren't as well-known. Um, we won't look to the fact that there was a Flash plus Nightwing. There was a uh, one where everyone was a bunch of heroes teamed up with some of the people from the new Teen Titans. Uh, now they're teaming up with some people from Scare Tactics. Uh, Legion of Superheroes number 96 came out this month with a beautiful cover by Alan Davis and Mark Farmer, but then again, you know, they're always beautiful. Uh, apparently there's some kind of mind thing going on with Cosmic Boy and Lightning Lad. Which, I grant you, might not have been their names in this era, but because this is the post-Zero Hour Legion, but uh, was it Sparks? Maybe? I don't remember. Uh, Robin number 45 came out this month. Uh, the Steel Trade Paperback Forging of a Hero came out this month. That... Uh, basically covers the first one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, uh, the first seven or so issues of Steel, including Steel Number Zero, from the Zero Hour time. Man of Tomorrow, Superman, Man of Tomorrow Number Nine came out. This was the quarterly book that was supposed to fill in that slot from the fifth weeks. Uh, basically, this is uh, just kind of gives a rundown of the up of the then up to current. Um, history of Superman, including the story of his various costumes, you know, because at this point, his new electric blue costume was all the rage. They have to point out some of the other costume changes he went to, he went through, including uh, some of the stuff that's mentioned uh, during the Crisis of the Crimson Kryptonite, when he had to wear a kind of metal suit because his powers were gone. Uh, the gladiator outfit he wore when he was on Warworld during his exile into space. Um... The circus costume he wore when he was a circus performer in World War II during the Time and Time Again storyline. Uh, the black costume he wore when he first returned in The Return of Superman. The Krypton Man costume that he wore when he was basically possessed by the Eradicator. That short time where he wore the Gangbuster costume. The costume he wore... Um, after his return basically was just his normal costume but it stretched with him when he when he started gaining too much energy and actually was growing way too huge like hulk sized and it never tore hmm. uh also during that crisis of the crimson kryptonite um uh, before he had that metallic the metal the metal suit on uh he actually started off he went out once basically with a rope, some gloves so he didn't bust his hands up, and uh, that pr uh, force field belt that Dr. Uh, Professor Hamilton had created and kind of was like a super Batman-ish type person. And they have that on here, plus the, out the outfit he wore when he took on Doomsday again in Doomsday Hunter Prey. That's just the ones on the cover. They're don't have the issue in front of me. There might be others that they mentioned in there. Plus, uh, you know, the electric blue costume and his original. But uh, 
I highly recommend this issue. It's one of the ones that they use a lot for Superman with when they were releasing stuff with toys but it's written by Roger Stern it's drawn by Paul Ryan and inked by Brett Breeding you, that is some beautiful art and some great writing you can't go wrong with it and basically it's uh, Ma and Paul narrating the whole thing uh, Teen Titans number 12 I mentioned the Teen Titans this is uh, Then and Now the first part of a four part story that actually sort of guest stars some of the members of the original Teen Titans team uh, this one you see the current day Nightwing with a flashback going on behind him of Robin, Fla Kid Flash, Wonder Girl, and Aqualad trying to save Speedy from the grips of some kind of sea creature. Which is kind of cool. And finally, Wonder Woman number 125. Uh, this is basically called Death Watch. Uh, this has Wonder Woman in her bed, uh, all hooked up to, you know, to monitoring equipment, presumably naked because of the way it's laid out, uh, with Superman, Flash, Martian Manhunter, and Green Lantern around the, around her. And apparently Green Lantern's kind of ticked because it looks like either he or somebody else uh, took a vase full of flowers for Wonder Woman and smashed it on the ground. It's a beautiful cover by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name. Uh, and he, he, he did a great job with it. Uh, that's it for this episode. Uh, like I said, this we're going weekly, so next week you will have another brand new episode, if I can get it out in time, um, featuring the next issue. So make sure you tune in. Uh, also, I do have, like I mentioned earlier, I do have some specials coming up that I have planned. Uh, I don't know exactly how I'm releasing those yet. Those will come out on days when the regular episodes featuring the JLA are not coming out. So it will be a little different just to kind of split them up a little bit. But um, please make sure you hang around and uh, we'll see you next time. Bye, everybody. This has been an episode of Charlie's GeekCast, hosted by Charlie Niemeyer. The show's website is www.charliesgeekcast.com, where you'll find notes and images for each episode. Please feel free to leave a comment there, or email the show at charliesgeekcast at gmail.com, and I'll read them on the air. You can also subscribe to the show on iTunes. I also have another show called Superman of the Bronze Age, where I cover Superman comics published between 1970 and 1986. You can find that at www.supermanofthebronzeage.com. Charlie's Geek Cast is an I Don't Have a Fake Company name production. All images and music used are copyright their respective copyright holders. Thank you for listening, and God bless. Yeah.